Uh, we're actually uh, finishing up a very short series called Encounters with Jesus. Pastor Eric talked about the encounter Mary and Martha had with Jesus as they were processing the grief in the loss of their uh, brother. And Pastor Todd talked about the encounter the Roman centurion had with Jesus as he was thinking through issues of faith. Uh, but today what we're going to talk about is the encounter that Saul had with Jesus. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. Maybe it's been a while since you've read through the book of Acts. Um, it's a tremendous book. Uh, it's really about the, the, the birth and the launch and the spread of the church. And here we are today, and it all starts in the book of Acts. Uh, what I'd like to do is, before we get into the, the encounter Saul had with Jesus in Acts chapter 9, is just to give us a little bit of background, a little bit of context, so we're all on the same page. So let's do it this way. In Acts chapter 1, we see, we read the very last words of Jesus before he ascends into heaven, and these are his words. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In an ever-widening circle, you are to be my witnesses. We'll talk about what that means in a little while. Now that's Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes in a spectacular way and gives birth to the church. And then uh, Peter gives his very first sermon, his very first message ever. And many, many people come into a relationship with God through placing their faith in Christ. So the, the, the church is born. Now we can sort of combine chapters 3 through 6. Uh, it's really about the expansion, the growth of the church. The church is still in the Jerusalem area, the immediate surrounding area. But it's really starting to happen. More and more and more people are beginning to join what was called the way. They weren't called Christians at that time. Not yet. It was called the way. More people are joining the way. In fact, it's growing so much that those who were given charge to teach the word of God were not uh, adequately taking care of those who had physical needs, the widows and, and so on. And so what they did they identified seven guys who would be in charge of taking care of those very practical, physical needs. And one of the, the seven guys they, they, they uh, appointed is called Stephen. Maybe you know the story. He shows up in chapter 6. Stephen was known for his great wisdom, his great grace, his power. And Stephen was absolutely unafraid, fearless, to talk about Jesus with anybody and so he caught the attention of the religious leaders of that day, and they hauled him into sort of a, a court of sorts, the ruling Jewish elders called the Sanhedrin, and they want to know what he's about. And so he begins to talk, and he gives this fabulous history of the nation of Israel in chapter 7. If you ever want to know what Israel's about, just read chapter 7. And he begins with, just really celebrating how God's hand has been upon the Jewish people, how God's hand has been upon the nation of Israel. And I can just imagine these ruling Jewish elders, the Sanhedrin, saying, yes, that's our God. He's, his hand is all over us. He blesses us. And, and then you come near the end of chapter 7, and Stephen steps over the line, and he looks at these ruling elders, and he says, you stiff-necked people. God sent the prophet. He sent the Messiah. He sent Jesus, and you killed him. <laughs> At this, they rush Stephen. They drag him out of the city, and they stone him to death. 
That's the, at the end of chapter 7. And probably so, those who were stoning Stephen could have a better wind-up. They take out their outer cloaks, and they drop them at, a feet, at the feet of a man by the name of Saul. And this is the first time we read Saul's name at the end of chapter 7. Now Saul, maybe you know, uh, went on to uh, change his name. After his encounter with Jesus, after his commission from Jesus, as he goes to, to minister to those who are Gentiles, the, the, the non-Jewish people in the world, he called himself Paul. So when you see the word Saul, you can think Paul. And Paul went on to write one-third of the New Testament. Now, chapter 8 begins like this. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Now, those, are just, those are just the first couple of verses from chapter 8. We don't hear about Saul again until chapter 9. So the rest of chapter 8 is really about the spread of the church. Somebody once said a long time ago that the, person of the, the persecution of the church is sort of like stepping on a tomato. The seeds go everywhere. Maybe you know the story of the church in China. Today, there's something like 150 million believers there, followers of Christ, maybe more than that. But it all started under the heels of persecution. The message went everywhere. Many people don't know one of the fastest growing churches today, it's in the news all the time, the nation is Iran. <laughs> under the heels of persecution, the church is growing there. Isn't that amazing? We could talk about India under the heels of persecution and so on. So chapter 8 is really about the spread of the church, getting away from Jerusalem into the surrounding areas under the heels of persecution that began with the stoning of Stephen. Now we come to chapter 9, and Saul does show up. And what we're going to do is to read this section in, in three parts. And I think each part leads us to a question we can try to answer. All right? So this is how chapter 9, the encounter with Jesus, begins. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. I just want to stop there for a second because I try to imagine in my mind what this would have been like. Maybe you've seen the movie, read the book, seen the play, seen the musical Les Miserables. And you know one of the dominant themes there is this person Javert, this law keeper, this guy who lives by the rules and regulations of the law, trying to track down this man who had been forgiven by Jean, named Jean Valjean. And Javert is just filled with this relentless obsession to track down Jean Valjean. That's the picture I have in mind. And that's what Saul is relentlessly obsessed with pursuing men and women of faith. The story continues. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters, letters of extradition, addressed to the synagogues in Damascus. Let me just stop there for a moment. Why Damascus? Damascus was about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. It was a major trading center with routes going in and out. And Saul knew that if the message of Jesus gets into this city with routes going in and out, it'll be like stepping on a tomato. The seeds will go everywhere. So he wants to cut it off. So he heads for Damascus. The story continues, asking 
for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He, went, he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Let's just stop the story for a moment and try to answer this question. How does God bring someone to himself? I brought with me to help answer this question, to start answering this question, some correspondence I've had over the last month with people around the world. The chapel is is blessed to be connected with missionaries around the world and mission agencies around the world. One of those is Send International. They send Christian missionary, missionaries into places where they've never heard about Jesus. I have a true story. This is not from years ago. This is like recent. <laughs> and this is, this is a story that comes out of the Philippines where maybe you know there is a very significant Muslim population. And this is how the story goes, and I've abridged it. I've edited this down. There's so much more to this. It goes like this, a a formerly Muslim man was a university student, very poor, and had to live at the local mosque near campus. He was instructed by the local imam, which is the Muslim religious leader, he was instructed to infiltrate the student Christian ministry on campus and convince other Muslims not to go near the Christians. One morning when he was cooking breakfast, a radiant person walked out of the jungle toward him and instructed him to learn about Jesus from the student ministry leader. Eventually, he became a devout follower of Jesus and has led many others to faith in Christ. Now that story just goes on and on. Here's a story from Kazakhstan. That's a rather large country just below Russia, west of Mongolia. A Muslim by the name of Nuran had a wife who had already turned in repentance and faith to follow Jesus, and he mocked her. And then he got terribly sick, but got better and said to his wife, look, see what I have done without your God's help? Instantly, he was paralyzed. He had many moments to reflect. His wife explained who Jesus was, the Son of God who came to save him from his sin, and he mocked her even more and ripped up her Bible. As he lay in the hospital bed, he felt like he was dying And he began to ask forgiveness from anyone he could think of. He was about to ask Allah, the Muslim God, when the room filled with light and he saw Jesus standing in the room with a sword. And Jesus told him to repent and believe, and he did. And Jesus told him to stand up and walk, and he did. And both he and his wife now are followers of Jesus today and are his witnesses. I have more stories, but I don't have more time. I read, a, I read a book in the last five years, one of my favorite books, called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. I would recommend it, by Nabil Qureshi. A Muslim man who grew up in a home of devout Muslims, and then he became friends with a Christian friend who became his witness. But that wasn't enough. It took a dream, a number of dreams, to help him finally step over the line of faith and put his faith and trust in Christ. Some, some people say that up to a third of Muslims who, who, who step away from Islam toward Christ, a third 
have had a dream, a vision, a miracle. That's just, that's just Islam. I also got correspondence from Burundi, where we have a ministry to the Batwa, an unreached people group. I got correspondence from India, where there's so much persecution going on. I got correspondence from Mexico, where still the Bible was not written into some of the indigenous languages. It seems that it's like this. Wherever Jesus is not, where the word of God is not, where churches are not, where persecution is, there seems, it seems not uncommon to have dreams and visions and miracles. And of course, in the Bible, there is lots of precedence for this. You can go all the way back to Abraham and work your way all through the Old Testament to Daniel and many, many dreams and visions and miracles in between. You can go into the New Testament and start with Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and then go to Joseph, with Joseph and Mary, and then to the Magi, the wise men, and then the shepherds in the field, and then Cornelius and Pilate's wife, and um, John, who wrote all of Revelation based on a vision given to him from Jesus. And of course, there's this story of Saul, which, which was not a dream or a vision. This was the actual risen Lord Jesus, ascended Lord Jesus, who appeared to to, to Saul, and in, in a sidebar comment, this is what then allowed him one day to call himself an official apostle, an official representative of Christ. That's for another discussion. And, and, and Saul, Paul, eventually would say this experience on the road to Damascus is what helped him understand immediately the depth of his sin, the shallowness of his own self-righteousness, what led him from unbelief to belief? What, what led him from spiritual darkness to spiritual light, from spiritual death to spiritual life? Now, here we are in Port Clinton, northern Ohio, right? There are churches on every corner. It's not hard to find a Bible in whatever variety you want. You and I can talk about Jesus without a problem, Right? And yet people are still having their encounters with Christ. Maybe not a dream, a vision, or a miracle. The other night, I was uh, meeting with, uh, in fact, just yesterday, our, our Cuba team landed safely. They're all settled where they are. Which we have a number of people here from this campus on our Cuba mission team, providing clean water and the message of Christ. And we met about a month ago, I guess it was, and just in an effort to get to know one another, they all shared sort of the shortened version of their own encounter with Jesus. And do you know, not one person talked about a dream, a vision, or a miracle, but each person was very clear about putting their faith in Christ and coming into a relationship with God because of that. They had their own encounter with Christ. What, what does it take? What, do, what does it take? How does God bring someone to himself. And I think it begins with getting a person's attention. For me, when I was age 20, um, I, I walked out of a funeral home for the first time ever thinking about the brevity of life and about eternal life. Got my attention. For some people, it's just being enamored with creation. For some people, it's just using the God-given reasoning and ability. Of course there must be a God. 
For some people, it might be an emptiness or an unsettledness in the heart, but God gets our attention somehow. And then the same, the same Holy Spirit who breathed life into the church, the same Holy Spirit who breathed life into Saul, the same Holy Spirit who pursues Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and animists around the world, pursues people like you and me. And he even gives us the grace to believe. And then the freedom to choose. We must choose. Many of you have chosen to follow Christ. And your story might be rather sensational. You may have had a dream, a vision, or a miracle. That can happen. But your story might be more like mine, rather mundane. (laughs) But whether sensational or mundane, they're equally miraculous. Because God is reaching into a spiritually dead life and bringing life where there was once death, bringing light where there was once darkness. How does God bring someone to himself? Any way he can. We just need to choose. Now, the story continues. It goes like this. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. And the Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Let's just stop the story there for a moment and try to answer this question. Who does God bring to himself? Let me me start this way. Um, A number of years ago, when I was a pastor at a church in the Akron area. That church was very much like this church. In fact, it's called the chapel also. Um, But when someone would call in with the need to have someone do a funeral service, we would always say yes, whether they were affiliated with our church or not. We do the same thing here. We try to. And so this family called in, and they wanted somebody to perform the funeral service. And so I was nominated, and I went with the family to meet with the family. They could only meet a couple hours before the service, so we sat there. I remember it like it was yesterday in this rather low-budget funeral home, and we sat and talked about this older man, 50-plus years old, named, I forget, let's call him Bob. Forgive me if your name's Bob. But uh, we're sitting there talking about Bob. Well, tell me about Bob, and they tell me a little bit, but not a lot, you know, and I want to say something meaningful of course, I'm going to talk about Jesus and talk about eternal life and all of that. And, and I said, well, tell me about his affiliation with church. Nothing. Tell me about his interest in God. Nothing. Tell, tell me about any interest in Jesus. Nothing. And I'm thinking, well, this is going to be a really short service. And they said, well, we have an idea. Why not, why not, at some point in the service, ask if anybody out there would like to come up and say something about Bob? And I thought, okay, we can do that. But I'm thinking in my mind, that can go really well or that can go really bad. So in the service, I, I just said, would anybody here like to come up and say something about Bob? And a lady came up. And she, nice lady, but it was interesting. She said, Bob, I work at, I work at the local bar and Bob was there every night. 
And nobody could outdrink Bob. <laughs> nobody could outdo Bob. Bob would just, he was an amazing dancer. He was an amazing, all this stuff, you know. And, and I'm over here just trying to, okay, where do I go with this? And I, she sits down. Would anybody else like to say something? This man comes up, and he turns around, and he says, Bob and I would meet just about every night at the, whatever the establishment was. We would go out then and just raise hell. And we would just, oh, we would, and he just went on and on and on and on. And I'm over here thinking, okay, now where do I go with this? This is just absolutely how it went. Would anybody else here like to say anything at all? And a man in the back in a wheelchair rolls up in a leather vest with patches all over it and long stringy hair. And I'm thinking in my mind, this is going from bad to worse. And I realized that I had just judged a book by its cover. He comes up and he wheels around and he faces the, those in attendance and he says, a few years ago, I realized my life was going nowhere. I had nothing. And then somebody explained to me how much God loved me and how God wanted to forgive me through Jesus. Forgive me and give me eternal life. And he went on and on and told his story. And then he said this. The day before Bob died, I went to visit him at the hospital. And I told him my story. I said, Bob, this can be your story. God wants to forgive you. God wants you with him. You just need to turn and put your faith in Jesus. And Bob did. And I'm over here thinking, are you kidding me? This thing just turned around, this whole story. So now I had something to say, and he went to the back, and it was an amazing service. And I thought, how unlikely, how unlikely that this would happen to Bob. Nobody saw that coming. Are you kidding me? Nobody. And yet we should have. The Bible is just filled with stories of unlikelies, of the unreachables, Turning to God. You could go back to Abraham. Abraham was nothing special. He was raised in a pagan family of idol worshipers. You could talk about Rahab, who was a pagan Gentile prostitute used by God. You could talk about Joseph, the the precocious, prideful young man used by God to save the Israel nation. Many more in the Old Testament. You can go into the New Testament. And Jesus finds 12 guys of unlikelies who he uses to change the world. Go figure. Not to mention all the people that Jesus rubbed shoulders with. But then you come to this person, Saul. Really? Saul? Nobody saw that coming. Nobody. I think one of my new favorite characters in the Bible is this guy, Ananias. Who knows what he was doing that day, just sitting at the breakfast table, reading the news about the persecution of the church, but he's safe up in Damascus. Ananias, I want you to go see this man named Saul, and you're going to help give him sight and help commission him into his ministry. Really, Lord, (laughs) Lord, you realize he, he takes people like me and throws us into prison. He takes people like me and has us killed. You And if you read between the lines of Ananias' words, it goes something like this. Lord, there is no way somebody like him could go from persecuting you to pursuing you. Lord, there is no way somebody like him could make that kind of 
turnaround. Lord, there is no, no way someone like him could go from unbelief to belief. There is no way. But there was. There was a way. And that was Saul. Now, Saul is an interesting study. Um, he kind of, in a way, Saul, Paul, represents the spectrum of humanity. If, if you, if you, if you li- think of the spectrum of humanity like this, the worst of the worst down here. And if you take the best of the best and put them down here, and God is over here. <laughs> Paul was the worst of the worst. Would you agree? He, didn't, he wasn't an axe murderer, but he pursued men and women who didn't believe like him and had them thrown into prison and had them killed. At one point in one of his letters, he says, I was the worst of all sinners. And yet, here's the best of the best. In his letter to the Philippians, he talks about how he was a Jew among all Jews. How he was a, how he was a, a Pharisee who kept the law as perfectly as one possibly could. People would have aspired to be like him. Bad. Good. Spectrum of humanity. I mentioned that, that about age 20, I started thinking about spiritual things, and I became a Christian. And, and I would say probably I, on the spectrum, I was probably here. People thought of me as a pretty good guy, maybe here. I wasn't an axe murderer. Maybe you're over here, and, and your life, just good. Or maybe a rather checkered past and things you're really ashamed of. Maybe it is down here somewhere. This is the beauty of, of what we call the gospel, the good news of the Bible, is that God is over here, and this person here can't make their way to God on their own, and this person here can't make their way to God on their own, but God, through Christ, has come to us. He has done through Jesus Christ what we could never do for ourselves. He has provided a way. Paul would go on to say, anyone, anyone, here or here, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And sometimes I wonder, you know, even in a group like this, I know many people have called upon the Lord, but some have never really done that. They get, there's no way God would take someone like me. Or some might be thinking, I'm already a good person, ah, but not as good as God. And God takes us to himself through Christ, we just need to believe in Jesus. I, I remember uh, at our other church in Akron, there was a guy in the community. He was one of those guys who I had a relationship with him. Um, we could talk about you know church Christianity, but he it was always stiff arming. No, I you know, and he's one of those guys who would say, if I ever came into your church, the roof would fall down. He was satisfied without Jesus. And then there was that day. Look out, and there he is. Didn't see that coming, but I should have. Because there's evidence throughout Scripture. (laughs) There's evidence in my own life that God would take somebody like me or somebody like you. And it makes me think about the people in our lives right now. Maybe it's a son, maybe it's a daughter, maybe it's a husband, maybe it's a wife, maybe it's a mother, a father, a friend, a co-worker a neighbor, and you think there is no way they would ever have interest in God. Oh, yeah? That brings us to our next, the rest of the story. 
So Ananias went and found Saul, and he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight, and then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. Let's stop there for a moment and just answer this question. Why does God bring someone to himself? Maybe a month ago, I finished just a thin little book by a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl. Maybe you know the name. He was a Jewish psychologist, a Holocaust survivor in Auschwitz. And he went on to write a number of books, including Man's Search for Meaning, which is the book I read. He survived Auschwitz. And he says that when they were liberated, it was awesome. He and his fellow prisoners, as few of them as there were, it was awesome to have that freedom. But then he eventually had a question emerge in his mind, and so did, so did all of his other fellow liberated inmates. <laughs> and the question was this, now what do we do? What is our responsibility? We have freedom, but what is our responsibility? The other night, my wife and I were watching a movie, and featured in the movie was the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island, both symbols of freedom, both symbols of responsibility. When you, when you look at two sides of a coin, you can think one is freedom, one is responsibility always. Maybe you can think back to your days in high school or college, and finally you graduated, diploma, freedom. Oh, responsibility. Or maybe you were raised in, in your home and couldn't wait to get out of your home, couldn't wait to get out of your town, freedom. Responsibility, they always come together. Why does God bring us to himself? Certainly for freedom. You, you can't read through Paul's letters without getting a sense of we're free. In fact, his very first letter that he wrote was to the Galatians. And the entire book is the theme revolves around freedom. Freedom from unnecessary rules and regulations. Freedom from the, the power of sin, the presence of sin, the, the penalty of sin. Free to live for God. We're free, but you also can't read through any of Paul's letters without getting a sense of responsibility. What is our responsibility as a believer? Now, we could answer that question in a myriad of ways, but what I want to do is stay with the context of the passage we're looking at and the context of the book of Acts. And that must bring us back to where we began. And Jesus said, And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Somebody asked me recently, what, is, what does it mean to be a witness? How would you answer that? I, I, think, I think I said it just means to be a representative of Jesus with my life and with my words. Now, why does God bring me to himself? For freedom to bring me into the family of God, to enjoy it, to be here in this setting. Observers of the early church said that the early church was like a beehive in reverse. You know, uh, bees go out and collect pollen and bring it back for food on a rainy day. They need it. But the church, we come here and receive spiritual food and we take it out there. 
And with our lives and with our words, we help others who are still apart from God understand who Jesus is. And when you look at the Apostle Paul, Saul, that's the first thing he did. He was baptized, and then he looked for people to talk about the Son of God, about Jesus. Why does God bring us to himself? For freedom, for responsibility. This is the greatest thing today. You get to go out where you work and live and play and be his emissaries, be his witnesses, so that you can tell somebody else about your encounter with Jesus, so that they can have their own encounter with Jesus. Let's pray together. And now, God, thank you for your word, and thank you for the, um, boy, just personally, God, thank you for bringing me into your family for freedom and giving me a sense of responsibility. I pray that we would be that kind of church, that kind of person, that we would uh, just celebrate what you've done for us, but also celebrate that we get to be on the team, having a part. Help us to be your witnesses. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.